Hello and welcome to In Conversation at the Traverse, sponsored by Spotlight, the home of casting. I'm Orla O'Loughlin, the Artistic Director of the Traverse Theatre in Edinburgh, and today I'll be speaking to the star of one of our Traverse Festival 2018 shows, Mark Thomas. For those who may not know, the Traverse Theatre is Scotland's home of new writing and lies in the shadow of Edinburgh Castle. It holds a special place as the heart of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe in August and presents a dynamic range of new work and engagement activities for audiences all year round. Mark Thomas is a long-time friend of the Traverse and really is a one-of-a-kind artist and performer. He's a blend of political activist, nuanced storyteller and brilliant comedian who has worked extensively in TV and radio as well as on stage. He's been classified as a domestic terrorist by the Met Police, has walked the entire length of the Israeli separation border, started a comedy club in Palestine, exposed the corrupt activities of undercover police, held the Guinness Book of Records world record for the most number of protests held in a day, and perhaps most impressively of all, once visited a Tesco metro in central London whilst wearing a onesie, leading around a fish on a skateboard without getting kicked out. He is utterly inimitable. I chatted to Mark a couple of weeks into this year's Traverse Festival on Monday, August 20th, in front of a live audience in Traverse One. Um, good evening, everybody. What a pleasure to see you all here tonight. Um, my name's Orla O'Loughlin. It's my great privilege to be the artistic director of the Traverse Theatre and to host this evening's conversation with a huge hero of mine, and I'm sure many of yours too, Mr. Mark Thomas. Well, thank you. Mark. Yes. You are an Edinburgh Festival regular. Yes. What's that about? What is it about the festival that brings you back year after year? Oh, I don't like going on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's... Um, no, I love... I, I look, I first came to the festival when I was 19, and came, I was a drama student, and I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And they had 784 England who were performing uh, the Good Soldier Schweik, um, which, I, you know, I was completely in love with, because uh, I, I had this... Do you know, when I was growing up in South London, we had loads of uncles who weren't actually uncles, okay. but neither were they predatory in the modern sense. And so um, it was kind of like we had loads of uncles, and one of the uncles that I had was completely in account basic and subversive literature. Wow. And so what he used, and he, used, he gave me a copy of Yaroslav Hasek's Good Soldier's Fight. Um, it should be said, he was an exceptional uncle. Do you know what I mean? My other uncles, one was a carpet fitter, one worked on the jukeboxes, and the other ran a pickle company. <laughs> so, the, so, but they, they, um, but the, the, they had, 784 England did this performance of the Good Soldier Schweik in the Edinburgh bus station garage canteen. Mm. Right, so when people had finished for the day, they converted the canteen into the set, and I was like, this is just fantastic. <laughs> I was just blown away by it. And it was the first time I'd seen actual, um, well, the first time I saw stand-up comedy, I was uh, 16, and my dad uh, took me to see uh, Tommy Trinder, 
who was an old sort of South London musical star and, and used to, there are actually footage you can find of him performing on the streets to the troops in World War Two, he was he's absolute stalwart, and he also managed uh, or owned rather a football uh, club, Fulham Football Club, for a period of time. Just as I think, if, once you reach a certain celebrity status in South London, you have to do that as penance. But he he kind of he, he was amazing, and seeing Tommy Trinder, uh, he was the first stand-up I saw. And my dad was just like because we loved Spike Milligan and Dave yeah. Allen. You yeah. know, those were our heroes. Do you know what I mean? Um, and my dad was, because um, my dad was a self-employed builder, he was also a Methodist lay preacher, he was also incredibly rude. I mean, just like <laughs> there were no boundaries whatsoever. Uh -huh. um, and he we, he completely adored Steptoe and Son. It was mm -hmm. the one, because he was very, very sort of like, he was, he was fighter. I mean, he was a proper fighter. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and and actually, it was very funny, because I did a show, this is my, Orla very kindly let me have my first proper go at the Trav here when I did Bravo Figaro, which is a play about my dad. And anyway, it was about him loving opera, but also, you know, and him dying. And um, it was incredible, because we did the show, because the Royal Opera House, first of all, sort of commissioned it by accident. And um, <laughs> well, then what happened was I told this story about my dad uh, and about how he used to take, um, it was for Radio 4, it was the Inheritance Tracks. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. I did the first ever one of them. And it was, um, they said, what song did you inherit for, from your family? And I said, Figaro's Aria in the Barbara Seville. Incidentally, I went to see the Theatre de Champs-Élysées version at the Festival Theatre the other day. It was just unbelievably brilliant. Uh, but that's, uh, that, you know, that great, you know, Bravo Figaro, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bravo Figaro, just brilliant. And um, so, uh, uh, and how my dad used to take this, um, he used to take tape recordings of opera up onto, he used to work on the scaffold, so we used to go up to, to the roof and he used to play these things. Mm. And of course, I was sort of like into art bands and punk rock. Do you know, I mean, I was, I had a, my mum gave me my first Mohican. What it was, um, it was completely, so what she did was she, she bought a, a, a little shaver thing for my dad, because my dad was like, no, nah, I don't need to go to the bar, but your mum will do it. So she, he was like that. So my mum thought, oh, I better get this. And she decided to try it on me and just locked a whole load off. And she said, how am I going to even this up? I said, you'll have to give me my hickin. So um, I've slightly gone off the topic here. No, no, but, it's good. <laughs> Keep going. But the thing was, I talked about how my dad used to sing these opera songs on the roof during the summer and how embarrassing it was as, as a 16, 17-year-old. I, uh, I found it excruciating. Um, but n looking back on it, it's one of my proudest and fondest memories mm. of him uh, as a man who sort of came from nothing and discovered this thing for himself and claimed the culture that really wasn't supposed to be his mm -hmm. to claim. Um, and he knew his stuff. Do you know what I mean? He could tell you why Wagner wasn't very good. <laughs> and he would tell you very forcefully. But um, he... He really, really knew his arguments, and he, he, he was passionate about it. And so I told this story about it, and um, they heard it on, some people at Royal Opera House heard it, and then called me and said, would you like to do something for our festival? And I said, yes, and you have to lend me opera singers. And they lent me opera yeah, singers. Yeah. And because my dad had a disease called progressive supranuclear palsy, which is degenerative and also has an element of dementia in it, so we took these opera singers down. We put on an opera in, his, in the living room yeah. in the bungalow in Bournemouth. And so these opera singers were performing in front of my mum's platters that she had laid out in the kitchen. But so, so we did all of... Um, so where did this start, Orla? Um, just talking about Edinburgh and what it is oh, that yeah, yeah, yeah. bringing so, you back. Yeah, so basically, 
that started there. And then I came and talked, and you said yes. And then we put it on here. And um, it, was, it, was a, it was a show that completely... Um, and what I love doing, I th I'm, I'm obsessed with sort of trying out new things because uh, I'll get bored very quickly. And also, I think people get lazy. New performers can sometimes get lazy. Uh, I started off as a stand-up comic, so you can see... I know comics who've done the same material for 32 years. Mm. Do you know, and you sort of sit there and go, all right, you're going to get the rabbit out of the paper bag again. Great. But, you know, it's... it's um, I, I find that lazy and unfulfilling. Yeah. Um, and also, you want to explore the world a bit. And what I love is this idea that you can go off and, and do something. Yeah. You go and have an adventure, and then you come back, yeah. and you tell the story. Yeah. And that's basically what my stuff is. I go and have an adventure, I come back, and I tell the story. And it just so happens it happens. In, and it, I, if you want to get nice and arty about it, and why not, Yeah. that is what the Greeks did, and that's what your old Norse did, didn't it? You know, yeah. on one fine morn we set off on a westerly wind, you know, except I've cut out all the waffle before it. Okay. Um, my Beowulf is about that. Bad monster killed it, you know. Done. Yeah. Um, it's funny, uh, you know, you talk about Greeks there. It strikes me that the... the, the the formation of, of, of the seating that we, we have in here, there's something quite amphitheatre-like about yeah. it, that steep, steep rake and the sort of the way that it sort of hugs the action. You can really, you know, and you do so much direct address that you can really yeah. see your audience. Well, this is the really interesting thing. There's a lovely guy who's a performer called Peter Bird who does, uh -huh. who lip-syncs to audio, mm -hmm. to, to like proper scientists and yeah. academics. And one of his lip syncs and it's quite the most remarkable thing and he talks about how Greek amphitheatre is shaped like the human ear, the inside mm -hmm. of a human ear. So actually they're designed for the word to be heard. Mm -hmm. And in Greece that you have, uh, what originally happened was obviously it was this wonderful great democracy unless you're a slave or a woman or a criminal, you know, or what have you. And yeah. basically it was, you know, unless you went to Eton. Then, um, but it was like that. So what he did was, and he said, what's really incredible was the fact that actually, there's an enormous amount of Greek plays that are named after slaves, criminals, and women. Uh, that's the you know you, you, you Lysistrata just for you know, and what it is is you stand in the middle of a stage and you say, listen to me, and that's remarkable. Mm -hmm. That's remarkable. Mm -hmm. Actually, this way to tell a story from people who aren't represented often on stage mm -hmm. is really absolutely thrilling and electric and a vital part, I would say, of actually a, of a democratic process. Uh -huh. So a democratic process, I'm just thinking about the very political nature of your work and <coughs> sort of the intersection between you know, art and politics. I don't know if you can sort of separate them. I can't. No. So can you say a bit about that, just as we're talking about ancient Greeks and speaking well, truth to you're, power and, you but, know. Well, yeah, well, I suppose um, I think everything is political. Mm -hmm. So every bit of art is political. Everything, you know, because it reflects who an individual is or who a group of people are and how they see the world around them. Mm -hmm. And the relationship of those two things is extremely telling. I'm hesitating to quote Susan Sontag, partly because I can't quite remember it exactly. But also because what she talked about is the is about truth line between the relationship of the observer and the observed. Yeah. So any kind of thing that you produce on stage 
has got a political dimension to it. It doesn't matter if you're just going, well, we didn't think it'd be political. We just wanted to do a soft shoe shuffle. No, that has a political dimension because it's about who's coming to see the shows. What do they want? What's the purpose of the show? Who's performing? Who's controlling it? Yeah. Who's subsidizing it? Who's taking the money? What do people hope to gain from it? All of that has a political dimension. Yeah. So that's really, you know, whatever you do is going to be political. Mm -hmm. um, I have to, you know, because I often get people go, the critics of people like that, well, and reviewers will go, yes, but you left-wingers, you know, you just preach to the converted, which, you know, is rubbish, really. But I always like to point out, you never ask that of the right-wingers. You never mm. say to Jim Davidson, which comes first, the racism or the gag, Jim? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? None of that actually happens. Mm -hmm. So, but, but all of it is political, and that's a really important thing. And I, I, I suppose when I started doing... When I started as a stand-up, what was political for me was the act of transgression, mm -hmm. that you, you can transgress ideas, that you can play around. And I always used to say that I would talk, the, I would just, if I'm in front of a very lovely, sort of very polite, beautiful, very right-on liberal audience, I would talk about the most obscene sexual acts <laughs> I could think of. And if I'm in front of a load of beer monsters, I'll talk about the Mexican debt crisis. Uh -huh. And it was just that kind of like trying to do something that you, and, and I'm, I'm very serious about that, you know, that's, I remember standing on stage talking about the Mexican debt crisis at the Comedy Store. And you used to do two shows um, at the Comedy Store. Uh, when it was, um, they used to have it. It used to be in Leicester Square. Uh, well, originally it was in a strip club, and then it moved to Leicester Square. And then, and when you stood on stage, you had this little sort of little group of people here, which is quite nice, and then a little sound desk here, and then down here there was a little dip in the club. So literally, there was a dip about this much, and people used to sit down in it, looking up at the stage. We used to call it the sheep dip, and that was where all the heckles were going to mm. come from. Yeah, okay. And it was kind of like at 2 o'clock in the morning, it was kind of like <laughs> launching into a tirade about the Mexican debt crisis. <laughs> and I love that element yeah. of transgression. I love that idea that you can play with ideas about what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, mm -hmm. about... And there's a, what George Carlin talks about it, who's ama he's amazing, sort of like one of the most brilliant stand-ups ever, American. And he talks about it's not about charging over the line. You want to be controversial, don't charge over the line. Mm -hmm. You dance backwards and forwards, mm -hmm. which is just a beautiful description of just taking people and then taking them back. And, then, and okay. it's lovely. Okay. And you see yourself as sort of fitting into that tradition. This dancing is very... Exciting, I think, to you know that it's not about being on send, but actually it's, it's you know that it's more of a an ebb and flow. I think. Look, I think all all performance is is a, it's not. A, I always say it's not a, a declamation; it's a conversation. Yeah. So actually, and I think that it, it's typified within stand up and within comedy because the laughter is the conversation. Uh -huh. You know, you, and people hearing people go, or people go, or, you know, that's yeah. part of the conversation that yeah. we're having with an audience. Yeah. You take people through, and I love that. I yeah. adore that. Yeah. And what happened was, I just got, I got, I got annoyed. I, I do get bored easy, and so I kind of go. Wait, I was really upset by the work ethic that a lot of comics had. So me and my mates, and we were just talked about this before we started. We formed the first ever new material night in London. It was to encourage comics to write new material. And we used to, the rule is you have to have five new minutes or you can't go on. Okay. And so every, and we used to run it. And then we formed a, another group called The Cutting Edge, which was at the comedy store. And that was, um, we would do topical material. And we actually used to set ourselves the task that in the interval we would write gags. So the audience would set us a topic wow. just before the interval. Then we'd go off in the dressing room and everyone's like, fuck, 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 <laughs> trying to write these gags. 
And then we'd go out and we'd start the second half by telling yeah. the gags and the audience voted on who did the best ones. <laughs> and it was great. It was really exciting. Yeah. Because you're writing, you know, constantly, all yeah. the time you're writing and you're thinking and you're putting ideas out. Um, but what was really annoying was, of course, if you're writing a topical show, is you're suddenly writing about things which the Daily Mail, because what about, you know, Wills or Harry or whoever, yeah. which one it is, you know, Mary Mungo or Midge, whichever one's got the crown. They, you know, you're suddenly having to follow that. And, and that agenda was quite, I, I kind of thought, I don't want to be involved in that. Okay. That's not what I'm interested in. So something about uh, having to work to such such tight deadlines. Do you yeah. set yourself tight t deadlines yeah. now? <laughs> I mean, your output is prodigious. Like the amount of work that you make and, uh, and tour is kind of off the scale, I think. I don't know anyone who's producing as well, much I, work I, as you are. You know, life's short. Uh -huh. <laughs> Why not get on with it? Yeah. It's... Um, yeah, I remember coming to you about 18 months ago and saying to you, look, I've got two shows that I want to do. And one of them is about, um, we, uh, we, we ran a series of comedy workshops in a Palestinian refugee club, yeah. uh, in a refugee camp. And we set up a comedy club. And, uh, and I said to you, I want to come and do the show. And, um, and what happened was, it was last year, I was working with an uh, amazing comedy teacher who is uh, Dr. Sam Beale from Middlesex Uni. And we went over and we ran these comedy workshops uh, for these Palestinian kids, and it was thrilling. Yeah. Because we, we just got the, the people would talk about everything, and they would talk about everything from what it was like to live in a refugee camp under Israeli occupation through to their love of Korean hip hop music. Yeah. And it was just completely unpredictable, completely off the wall. It was absolutely amazing. The level of censorship that we went up through was actually about being in the camp. Yeah. And so it's like people in the camp who are going, what you can say and what you can't say. And there were, that was enormous. So you have this societal pressure. Are you a good Palestinian? Are you representing the Palestinian yeah. struggle? Um, <clears throat> and then you have a very religious pressure that, you know, you, women shouldn't be up there and you mustn't, you know, take the piss out of the hijab. And, and actually, we, we were completely led by them, yeah. which is, you know, the proper way of doing yeah. it. And... Um, Anyway, we, we, we put on this night and it was really, we ended up, it was kind of like touch and go whether we were going to run the club night because a load of Palestinian prisoners had gone on hunger strike in jail. And mm -hmm. um, it's a tense time. And so to kind of calm things down a bit and to sort of give us a little bit of space, uh, we did this thing called the Saltwater Challenge, mm -hmm. which is where you have to, the hunger strikers drink a, a little bit of water mixed with salt to keep the internal organs ticking over. And so you have to do this, and you're filmed, and then you challenge yeah. someone else to do it. It's a little bit like the ice bucket challenge, except it's really bad tasting. And um, I, I, so we did this, and I thought, oh, we've done enough. And then this guy, who was the ex-leader of the Al-Aqsa Brigade in Janine, came up and suggested that we go down and do it in Ramallah Main Square with the hunger strikers' relatives the next day, which was quite a dramatic thing to stand yeah. in the square full of people you know, holding pictures of their loved ones who are on hunger strike. Yeah. And, and I chose to, to drink the mixture of salt and water before making my speech, which was the wrong way around. Um, and but, the, um, but we did it, and we managed to get through. And then we brought some, some, a couple of lads who you met, Faisal and Allah, yeah. who came over. Yeah. Um, and it, they're just Allah Shahada and Faisal Abahesha. And that was, they were amazing performers. They were really amazing yeah. performers. And we created a structure of a show that meant that I could continue teaching if they fucked up while performing. Yeah. Which they did do. And we were doing a gig here, and Alar walked off, and he was walking into the wall. 
<laughs> so we had to stop the show and go, man, you can't even walk off stage properly. Um, and and go, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And then walked off over there. <laughs> so you have to construct stuff like that, but yeah. you know, make them the stars of the show. Sure. Um, sure. And what's brilliant about that, what was really exciting, was not just touring it and doing it and seeing people going, oh, good Lord, they're talking about things that we didn't expect them to talk yeah. about. You know, our aim was to get really rid of that binary vision that, you know, you're either a terrorist or a victim. What was really, really exciting for me was about six weeks ago, I got sent a tweet, and unbeknownst to me, they had set up their own independent club in Janine and are now running a comedy club. Nice. I'm so thrilled. Yeah. I can't yeah. tell you. It's absolutely yeah. genius. Yeah. I'm so excited yeah. about it. It's just brilliant. And that's the best result. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you get something like that, how often do you get a chance to do that? So when you get a chance to do that, you're like, okay, we've got yeah. to do this. But also that took you years of planning and connections and putting the hours in yeah. and forging those relationships and getting the permissions. Like, that was no mean feat. No, it was it a didn't long... didn't happen... We, you know, you know, no, we did go... Like, we went over four times uh -huh. to, you know, to Janine, yeah. making visits backwards yeah. and forwards yeah. um, to talk to people and to make sure that they trusted us and that... So actually for them to feel secure that quite often you'll get people who go, oh, we met this one person who, who was just dreadful. And, it, and, and, for, and I suppose exemplified the fears that I had. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, I've been asked to talk, uh, to teach um, at the uh, university, uh, 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 a course for the Palestinians. I've been asked to teach a course about British theatre and, and writers um, from the 1950s. And I said, oh, how exciting. She went, no, 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 I don't want to do it. I said, well, what do you want to do? She said, I want to get them all in a room and say, why isn't there more political activity? And I said, well, I've always found that when you're working with oppressed people, the best thing you can do is tell them off. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and actually, it kind of exemplifies the idea that, you know, that horrible sort of imperial idea, really, that yeah. we, we've come to teach you how to do things. Yeah. Uh, and actually, what we did was we were really clear about it. We got a load of tricks and a load of ideas that you can work with and then run, or run with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so Showtime from the front line, which is the show that Mark's just describing there, uh, was here earlier on this year. Yeah. And you currently have another show playing in this yeah. very theatre. Um, yeah. Check up yeah. the NHS at 70. Yeah, which was, um, I did a month uh, residency in uh, four NHS hospitals in West London. And then we also did a series of public interviews mm -hmm. with some very high profile people yeah. agreed to talk to me which was kind of like oh that's quite unusual um and but we had people like the chief medical officer of england we had uh two former health ministers lord darcy and frank dobson agreed to talk to me uh this amazing bloke called uh, professor michael marmot who is the government expert on health inequalities and he is just he set the tone for everything we did mm -hmm. so we did all these interviews and we went around the country um, sort of talking to people, conducting these interviews, and then doing this residency, and then made a show about it. Mm -hmm. So another example of going off on an adventure, a journey, yeah. gathering material, bringing it back yeah. to have a conversation about it. Yes. How's it been? How's this, sh how's this show been going for you? Two weeks in, one week left. It's good. Yeah? I like it. What'd I like this one. <laughs> <laughs> what do you like about it? Um, I think everyone I've done has been slightly different, yeah. and I'm pleased about that. This one has been perhaps the most rigorous in the research mm -hmm. and in making sure that we really, really talk to as many experts yeah. as possible and let them inform the show, yeah. um, which is, I know, incredibly anti-Govian. 
but we um, we allowed the experts to influence it, mm -hmm. and and so the research on it was really really important. The notion that we would create little I hesitate to use the word characters because I'm not quite an actor, but um, little vignettes, little yeah. mimic pieces where you could show the people that we spoke to and quote them verbatim mm. and find the mannerisms yeah. that that kind of embody them a little yeah. bit. Yeah, you play lots of people. I know. Yeah. How's that? It's good. <laughs> I like it. No, I'm, I'm, I'm look. The thing is, whenever I, because I started out as a comic, and whenever I see comics acting, yeah. I'm always reminded how hard it is to actually act. Yeah. And I look at them and go, mate, you can't thrash around like that. You need nuance. Do yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And, 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 and when you see really good actors and you go, oh, man, that's good. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and for me, um, I'm, I'm always slightly wary of using the A word. Acting? Yeah. That I've, yeah. Okay. I always always feel that I ought, ought to put a little H in front of it and sort of like give myself slightly lower status. I'm going to do some hacking for you. Do you know what I mean? Well, you, do it you do it brilliantly. You sort of channel them. You channel those people because we can see who they are. There's photos yeah. of them up or sometimes a bit of footage. And then we see yeah. you sort of sort of become um, possessed by them, if you like. I think you do it beautifully. Mate, as a fan of B-movies, you've given me the best review there you ever. Go. Can have it. You become have possessed it. by the characters. Um, so before we throw it open to the audience, um, just uh, what's it like to be back at the Travis for a fourth time? No, it's brilliant. I love this place. I think it's really, really exciting and it's brilliant. And, and, and actually, the really, one of the lovely things about coming here Oh, there's lots of lovely things. I remember after doing Bravo Figaro, which is the first time I played here, I got on the train to go home, and I was on the train, and it just so happened I was sitting opposite an actor who'd been in another play here. And we were chatting away about how great it was to be at the Trav during the festival. And she turned to me and just said, you know this crew have ruined you for any other theatre. <laughs> <laughs> which was a really lovely thing to say. Yeah. And, um, and actually, what, what's really interesting is the... Is the standard of other, of the other performers mm -hmm. and the variety of of performance that goes on, mm. and you feel that you have to earn your place in it, mm. um, and that you you look you know you, there are some stuff up there that's on this year that is you know it's just outstanding, mm. and mm. you just go you know that's good, uh, but better do well tonight, I? <laughs> you know, and I think that, that that's a really it's an important thing for me. It's really really. It, when you, you know when you get like because all this play uh, was is an award-winning play. You've picked up a couple of awards, and uh, I picked up a Fringe first the other day for my language. So I was very and, and actually the thing about it, I was reminded that whenever people get awards, they go, "Oh, you know, the thing about awards is they never matter until you win one," <laughs> yeah, and that's what people always say. And I think I said words to the equivalent of uh, the nice thing about this is when I do a shit gig, I can come off and go, "No, I'm all right." So. <laughs> The thing, but the thing about it is actually the, <laughs> the people you want to impress are your peers. Yeah. It doesn't matter about the reviewers so much. It doesn't matter about... You want people who you regard as good mm -hmm. coming up and going, that was good. Mm -hmm. And you want, you want that interplay mm -hmm. to exist between you. Yeah, yeah. And something you're brilliant at is supporting the other artists and companies. Like you're a real champion. You make sure you see all the work, and yeah. you know you kind of really invest in the festival as a whole. I love, I love going lot. to see stuff. Mm. As you know, I have my target of four, I have to see forty shows oh, uh, while doing my own show and doing all yeah. the press and all that other stuff. Forty shows. I know. I saw my forty-first today. Congratulations. Forty-first. It was shit. 
<laughs> Don't say what it was. So, on that note, is there anyone who would like to ask Mark anything at all? Um, given what you were saying about uh, the importance of politics and dramatic performance, um, which which uh, production at the Travers here this year would you say is most important politically for for us now? I've got an answer to that, but I want to know what yours is. <laughs> okay, um, I, I, I've I've got four. I think uh, in 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 politically on the notion of of empire and transgression. Ulster American, which is an absolute superb production, and it's and I was just thrilled by the way in which it challenged very very sort of ingrained English attitudes towards Northern Ireland, and about they're they're sort of us, but they're not us. Do you know what I mean? And it really teased out those things, and it was like watching an amazing sort of Quentin Tarantino intellectual piece for a woman revenger, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. Um, so that was good. All a show which is about actually, which is about uh, about challenging the roles that women have. I was really touched by what you said. Uh, that there was when you were talking. The, it was during a theatre uncut discussion, mm -hmm. and you were talking about how the thing that struck you was that often women would have lead roles, but the the ending was so predictable and so sort of like oh, it's like I, my I, I kind of like notice it with my daughter. Right, my daughter's seventeen. And she's she's loves films, so we go and see all these sort of like weird, wacky Shanborough films, you know, like the Japanese sword films, and then sort of a bit of Kubrick and all of this. Uh, and she won't come to Hitchcock. She goes, oh, I hate it because he hates women. I'm like, oh, oh no, he does. And, and and actually, that's a really really important thing to actually go. You know, you don't have to have these endings. What girls are made of is a really important. My daughter just absolutely was on fire with that show. Um, I think um, Underground Railroad game. Absolutely absolutely the most incredible show uh, about race and the legacy of racism and how it infuses and infects all aspects of our lives. And I was just absolutely mesmerized by the boldness of the performances as well. Um, and class, yeah. class, uh, which is absolutely on the money, which is about, you know, Class, I feel it more keenly than ever before, than actually with, with the massive attack upon working class people in austerity, that actually class is being ignored and class is affecting people's lives. It's affecting their health outcomes. It's affecting their opportunities. It's affecting the way they live and their relationships. And it's this, what is happening is absolutely dreadful. And what class does to play is it just starts to tease out and pull apart how these things begin when we are youngsters and they follow us through our lives. Those, all of those plays, I'd say, yeah. Thank you very much. Good evening. I was actually expecting Mark Steele. I do apologise. Perfect. Perfect. Taking your point on class and Millie Molly Mandy and uh, whatever you said about Harry and William, what are your views on the unelected monarchy in this country? Or shall we say unelected head of state? Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Russian and French systems. <laughs> 
I think that's it. <laughs> what absolutely infuriates me about the monarchy is this idea that is this fairy tale idea that class is something you're born into, and actually it's just that actually your goodness, your innate brilliance, is something that God gives you, and the rest of us should all be capped offing subservient um, beings. And actually, that's the thing that that angers me most about it. Um, it is this sense of knowing your place that their presence brings. And also, I think what it does is it's sort of like, it's just, we've got this dreadful hangover of the empire, which we've never quite flushed out of our systems. And, um, and Brexit is part of that. Brexit is part of this, we're better than everyone else. You know, we can go it along, we're, you know, we don't. And actually, it's kind of, it, this will to ignorance, this belief in kind of like, just as long as we all pull together, we're all gonna be fine. It's just absolute nonsense. Uh, and so the, 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 the monarchy have this idea of enshrining a class system and at the same time encouraging people to be wonderfully ignorant at the same time. So uh, I'm not a big fan. <laughs> Thank you. This might be a bit of a weird one, but just thinking when you said Brexit there, have you ever thought about making a performance about Brexit? And if you were to, what sort of an adventure do you think you might go on to get to that point? <laughs> Well, bizarrely, um, I have thought about it. Uh, and I think the thing about it is um, my views on Brexit change all the time. Um, because generally, I, I was a reluctant Remain voter. And I voted Remain just because I think politics is what happens. And actually, my fear was, and, I, and it sounds as if I have the benefit of hindsight, what I was worried about was the, the increasing uh, strength of the far right that it would be emboldened uh, by Brexit and that we'd see an extremely right-wing government. Um, I actually thought Boris Johnson would be prime minister by now. So I didn't, you know, that bit I was wrong on. But those were my reasons for voting Remain. I couldn't with conscience do something that would encourage racism, right? That was the, that was the first and that was the last step with me. All the other arguments came secondary. What annoys me is with that the whole vote is not just the influence of Cambridge Analytica, not just the influence of or, or the actual kind of ease with which the various Leave campaigns broke electoral law. What annoys me is this kind of incredible sense of rightness that both camps have. And and for me, so I watched sort of like the the uh, the Remain march that happened in London where they had the big rally for the for the for the vote. And uh, I just thought there's nothing that will turn people off staying in Europe quite like the people advocating staying in Europe. Um, because it just sounds like a very posh middle-class wine of we know better. And actually, that ability to actually listen to what working-class communities are saying has just been chucked out the window. Um, and so my, my views on Brexit change all the time. Um, uh, uh, overwhelmingly, I think we're about to go off the edge of a cliff. But... It's more complex than that. The thing that attracts me about doing something about Brexit is that things happen so fast you have to build things in. And I loved, right, one of the first plays, two plays that I loved, right, when I, was, when I first started um, getting interested in performing. I was 16 and I saw Caucasian Chalk Circle. Right? I was a school production. I went along to laugh at my mates because I am that supportive. Um, and actually, I was amazed. I left the theatre and I can still remember being thrilled at how my mind had been changed. 
at how you start with this idea that the cheesemakers should get the land, and by the end of the play, you're thinking, no, it's the people who grow the vegetables, they should get the land. You've had this whole kind of like, you've, and I was amazed that you could watch something and have your mind changed. I thought, and it's informed everything ever since. Hmm. Um, but the other thing that I completely loved was when I was 18, I got, um, I got a, a, a standby student ticket to see Accidental Death of an Anarchist, hmm. Uh, performed by Belts and Braces um, at the Wyndham's Theatre in, in near Leicester Square. And it was thrilling. And the way in which they play with the audience, the way in which they muck around with various endings, the way in which they just turn something which should be sort of like sorrowful into this joyous romp and just point the finger at all the guilty people. And I loved it. And I loved the fact that when, when he was doing when they were doing it, when Dario Fo started performing that, when the court cases were going on, Right, for the cops who were accused of this crime. And they used to change the show each night according to what had happened in the court case. And I was like, oh, if I ever get a chance to do that. <laughs> you, and I suppose Brexit is the nearest one. So, yes, maybe. Maybe. I think a lot of people would like to see your Brexit show as well. I, I, yeah, well, that'd be good. <laughs> I loved your play about the NHS. Thank you. And like a lot of other people, I thought it was well-researched told with sympathy and understanding and left me in tears at the end. Can I persuade you to write one about the railways next? <laughs> Bizarrely, I have talked to someone two weeks ago about that. And, um, and, um, and they've said, look, you have to give it a year before you come back to something like this again. But yes, because I, I think the uh, railways is begging to be looked at in, in this way. It, it is just a nonsense. You know, we've, you know the, the, the London North East Rail, you know, whatever it's now called, now owned by the state because Stagecoach and Virgin couldn't do it again. You know, and, and, and actually I think it's, a, I, yes. You're pushing at an open door there. <laughs> and when I do it, I want you in the front row. <laughs> I'll put you in first class. <laughs> Thank you very much. Could, could I begin by disagreeing with you that um, yeah. I think comedians um, often make great actors, including yourself. But really what I wanted to ask you was that you strike me as someone who is really interested in direct action. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to ask you what informs you in direct action in a, in a political sense. What is it about your direct action which drives you and informs you? I think the thing about direct action is it is a very personal thing. And it is about taking a moral responsibility for your own beliefs and also for the actions that happen around you. I pay tax. I go nuts over people who don't. When Jimmy Carr did his great, oh, I forgot, I was, t oh, somebody just said, why don't you invest here? Um, I thought it'd be, no, you, you pay your tax, you do your bit, and if you don't, then you're no better than those big companies who take the money offshore, right? And, and so we take responsibility for that. That also means taking responsibility for when things like we arm, we help arm, you know, states that are oppressive regimes that commit humanitarian crimes. And we have to take moral responsibility for those actions. Uh, taxpayers' money is used to support the arms industry. And therefore, one of the imperatives is that we should take responsibility for that. If this is being done in my name with my government, then actually I should have a moral responsibility to stop some of those outcomes, to at least try and do that. And it's a moral 
imperative um, that I think a lot of direct action starts with. Uh, and it's very personal. For me, all the stuff that I've done on the arms trade has always been about the myriad of ideas that come out of it, which are about companies being supported with taxpayers' money or finding ways to collect from uh, the people at the bottom to help enrich the people at the top, but also a series of mechanisms that are there to exist for geopolitical reasons and actually have nothing to do with the common humanity and bonds of being alive. And so there is a real, real imperative that is about personal integrity and it's just about, you know, there's a thing about whether you can just look at yourself in the mirror in the morning. And I think that that's quite a good gauge of, for direct action. If you, can, if you can manage to do that and think, yeah, I'm all right, then you've probably done something that morally fits with you. Mm. Does that make sense? Thank you. Thank you for your question. Mark, in, um, your activism has obviously brought you into a certain level of opposition with um, the police force in this, in this country. But in virtually every show I've seen you talking about your, your activism, it's very rare where you haven't told at least one warm story about a police, a police officer on an individual basis. Mm. And I was just wondering, how would you define your relationship with the police in this country <laughs> over the years? Well, look, you know, you want to have a go at the institution and the structure, not at the people. You know, there, there, no cop becomes a police officer thinking, oh, do you know what I hope? I hope I fit up people who are innocent. No one joins the police force thinking that. There are plenty of fine, fine, good cops. What you want to look at, the structural inequalities, uh, and that's the law. I did a show called the Serious Organised uh, Crime and Police Act. They brought in a law that if you demonstrated around Parliament Square for a, a radius of a kilometre, you had to notify the police six days before you demonstrated. But a demonstration could be one person wearing a badge, right? So if one person wearing a badge, could you would have to, if you didn't get your notification in, you would have broken the law. Um, and me and my mates decided to play around with this law because a friend of ours was nearly arrested for having a, a picnic in Parliament Square. Yeah. And a police officer came up and said, this is an illegal demonstration. And she said, no, it's a picnic. And, she's, and they said, no, it's an illegal demonstration. And she went, no, there's doilies, there's cake. And they said, indeed, cake. And on her cake, she had iced the word peace on the word cake, on the, on the cake. So I got peace cake. And they said it was there for a political picnic and a demonstration. And um, I, I said to her, did you not put forward the point that all cakes are political if you look at how they're made? And Mr. Kipling in particular and his donations to various political structures could be deemed to be a political cake, but she didn't make that point. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but the point being was that she did get threatened with arrest. And when we thought, okay, you can be threatened with arrest for that, we can play. So I started to apply for um, permissions to demonstrate uh, and just to see how far we could push it. And I remember going into Charing Cross Police Station, there was a police officer called PC Paul McAnally, who was Scottish. And he was, um, I gave him the bit of paper and he just looked at it with my application. And he just said, right, you wish to demonstrate to defend surrealism. I said, I do. I believe I can demonstrate on anything I want. He said, you can indeed. I just didn't know surrealism was under threat. <laughs> <laughs> and when someone says something like that, you just go, you're in the shop. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, we spent a long time with PC Paul McAnally, and I got a Christmas card from him, and he came to see the show a couple of times, bought his wife. And, um, and I'm pleased about that, because actually what you want to do is you want to look at the structures. You want to look at the structural inequalities and the structural sort of... Um, uh, things rather than than him, you know, he's a perfectly nice chap. I want people to understand that it's the law that's at fault. 
How do I feel my relationship has, has been with the police in general? Um, mixed in general, the relationship that we have with the Forward Intelligence Unit is not good. The Domestic Extremist Unit is not good. These are police officers who, uh, whose job it is, is to monitor activists and to create databases about their activities. Their behavior has been, you know, where they've literally uh, followed activists around with cameras as they have moved around the city has been intimidatory and it has been uh, it's broken fundamental rights to privacy. Those relationships are, are not good at all. So it's a mixed bag is, is really, that when, when you're meeting police officers doing stuff like that, it's, you know, it's not great. Okay, thank you. Mark, I thoroughly enjoyed your show about the NHS. Thank you. It was mostly England, England and Wales centred, which I suppose is fair enough. But I just wondered if you had any hope for Scotland. No. <laughs> You're doomed. <laughs> yes, of course. When you say, do you have any hope for, for Scotland? Do you mean in terms of the NHS or do you mean in... Politically? <laughs> politically? Look, I, I mean, I... I think one of the great things, one of the lovely, amazing things uh, about Scotland is it, is it has a culture that is political um, that is vastly different uh, from England. And I think one of the real standout facts about Scottish culture and politics is that actually communal endeavour mm -hmm. and the greater good is held in greater esteem than it is in England. And that's a magnificent thing. Um, and I did say if Scotland became independent, I would be moving up. Um, uh, because actually the idea of just escaping the dead hand of the Tories and that dreadful old flag, you know, is just a brilliant thing. And, 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 and so for me, uh, when you say, is there any hope for Scotland? Yes. I think actually what was really interesting was in the referendum, there was a debate that went on, on the independence referendum. There was a debate that happened here that was absolutely exemplary in how issues are debated and put out into a public forum and how people engage with it and how young people engage with it. And that was really thrilling. It was absolutely thrilling to see. And it went beyond, way, way beyond the kind of like, oh, you know, were you born within the sound of, of a kilt being woven? Do you know what I mean? And therefore, you are Scottish and you must have it within your blood. It went into the nature of citizenship and what it meant to belong and to politically belong. And that was really exciting. Thank you. Um, just thinking what an amazing back catalogue you have and that you're just one person who's, who, as you say, you know, there's only so much time. There are so many issues. I've kind of got two questions. One is, um, how do you choose which issues to go after? Are you basing it on whether it will make a good show or whether you think it's politically the most important thing to do at the moment and there's a certain time that's right for it? Or do you have a gut instinct or how do you choose? And the other question is, have you ever thought of setting up a sort of Mark Thomas franchise where you go into, where you go into drama schools and inspire them to, oh, to no, present, no. you know, to the do this Mark kind Thomas of work? The Mark Thomas franchise is the dream. Oh, that's the dream, mate. And by that, I mean someone else can take the material and do the gig. <laughs> and I'll sit at home going, yep. <laughs> what makes me choose a subject is just what moves me. And it's, it's very instinctive. And that has got an element 
of politics in it, but it's the, the politics that sort of grab you and just go, we, why is no one, we need to look at, do you know what I mean? The thing about a journey is when you make that journey, you're the person making the sense of discovery. You're the person discovering things. And then you come back and tell people about what you've discovered. Yeah. And so it's not a question of going, I have the message, I will now find the form. You know, it is actually going, we're going to go and find out things. I'm going to have my mind changed. Yeah. I'm going to find out new things. And I'm going to come back and tell people that process. And so it's as much about sort of <laughs> this notion of self-improvement <laughs> as, as, as well as a kind of gut instinct of what we should be looking at. Mm. One, I was talking to some people the other day. Language skills are just like incredible. The, 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 a child's ability to learn language and to have words and to have an array of words are really, really crucial to their outcome in terms of their health, in terms of their education, in terms of their life chances, but also in terms of the chances of actually ending up in prison. And when you get rid of things like Sure Start and you abolish those child centers, what you're actually doing is you're attacking, uh, you're attacking working class children's ability to improve and have a better life. That's actually what you're attacking. And it's, and it's all to do with language. And so I was talking to speech therapists about this. And you can trace, you can look at the measured impact that Sure Start has on literacy. And we know for a fact, and you can look at the New Economics Foundation, who did research onto this and actually written reports about it, that when you get rid of Sure Start, you actually create illiteracy. That's what you do. You create illiteracy. And when you do that, we know there's a link between criminality and illiteracy, right? So we know that that's going to that's gonna come down the pipe at some point. So if you just look at it in terms, just in economic terms, this is deferment, this is PFI, this is have now, pay later, right? That's what it is. And so for me, it's really fascinating the idea that actually a child's language can define so much of what their life is going to be. And if you've got a chance to change that and improve it, and give them skills to educate, that's an amazing thing. And that's the stuff we need to be doing. So what happens when we get rid of it? What happens? What's the impact? And these are really profound things that have profound impact on human beings' lives. And yet we just ignore so often. And so when, when I was talking to sort of like speech therapists about this, who have had their jobs restructured five times after the Lansley Act, you know, I talked to um, the, the, one of the people in the show is a woman called Dr. Jackie Appleby, who's a GP in Tower Hamlets. She has a mental health team um, that she works with. When Lansley's Act came in, they were doing good work. Act comes in, they have to go away and form a company and then bid to do the work they were doing. And they win the contract, they do it for three years, they do the good work, they lose the contract on the second bid when they're undercut by a bigger provider. And suddenly, all that working knowledge, all those interpersonal yeah. relationships, all that personal connections with the area and the relationships you have with people, gone. You set back people's chances, their life chances. And this is dabbling in the stuff of people's souls. You know, when, when I was talking to people about that, I was like, we've got to do something on that. And it's very instinctive, do you know what I mean? Where you just go, this is little looked at, this is little considered, and this has profound impact. Mm -hmm. Okay, we probably have time for one more question if anyone would like to ask something. Hi, I, I've been doing some reading about Shakespeare and universality recently. And the interesting thing, I think, is about relating to, to stories, that what makes Shakespeare's story important is story. And what I detect, I think, in your 
work in Figaro and the Red Shed is storied. So do you find that when you formulate something, when you're doing something like what you've just been talking about, that it's getting somehow the ideas relating to stories, because stories are what we relate to? Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, stories are the most important part of it, and it's about, you know, when we talk about the, the speech therapy, you know, what we'll do is look for those stories. Yeah. Uh, and, and go off and have the adventure and then come back and tell it. And stories are absolutely important. And this is why Joe Douglas, who directed The Red Shed and also directed the Showtime from the Frontline and directed Bloody Trams, mm -hmm. which was brilliant. Joe now works at Life Theatre in Newcastle and they've got a build, did you know they've got a little separate building for stories? Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. They've got a separate building for stories and kids come in and it's all about telling their stories. So it's kids from the schools who tell their stories and they develop the stories, they develop the storytelling and sort of all of that throughout the week. Then they write them up and then they print them and then they give them to the school and they put them in the library and they're the books that most people want because it's their stories. Yeah. Right, and that's thrilling. So story is, is, is you know, the, 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 big, the big thing. Yeah. That's, it's what your story is. Uh, and there's different ways of telling it and there are different ways of forming a story. But story is, is, is time and time again what you what you have to come back to. Yeah. I, I there's one person who's uh, a mate of mine who's uh, a very good playwright. She goes, "Your trouble is you go off and have the adventure. You start doing the show, and then you think, oh, I need to find an ending. Uh, and really, you need to get the ending first, and then work backwards. Um, and in fact, on a couple of shows I've actually done, where uh, in particular Cuckooed, um, when we were, which was about being spied upon by a, a, someone who I thought was a close friend." working for BA Systems. We were two weeks into trying to show out when I said, we, we just, we've got the wrong ending. Mm. I have to go and confront this bloke. I remember we found, we just got a tip off from someone who we knew about where this guy was going to be. And we managed to turn up and doorstep him with a camera and ask him questions. And that created our ending. Mm. And um, you're absolutely right to talk about stories. You're absolutely right. They're, they're the things that people remember because somehow what we do all the time is tell each other stories. It's what we do as human beings. I like finding the good ones and bagsying them. <laughs> Fantastic. And on that note, thank you. Thanks for your story. Thanks for your oh. story tonight. Ah, thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. And thank you very much, everybody. Thanks for joining us in conversation at The Traverse, sponsored by Spotlight. If you'd like to find out more about The Traverse Theatre, a registered Scottish charity, the productions and activities we have coming up, or how you can help to support our work, please visit traverse.co.uk. We look forward to seeing you soon. <laughs>